Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. I know that there's a great concern, unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, you know that part of the world is tore up right now, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, a sister nation there. And I wanted to bring some kind of clarity. It may sound as we begin a little bit like a history lesson, but I want to help you think clearly about the fact that the heathen do rage, and that shouldn't surprise us. And those that forget God often make fun of God and mock God, but God will have the last laugh. Did you know that? He will. In fact, he holds the, the, the heathen in derision. But we're going to answer the question, why do the heathen rage today? And we're going to use a couple of, of, of passages to do that. And I trust your heart is not afraid. I hope you're not worried. I know that what's happening there in the Eastern Bloc could easily spill over to other nations. And it could turn in. It could. I'm not saying it will. Into World War III. I know we hear that up. That, that little phrase bantied about, and I know a lot of people are full of fear about what's happening over there. Well, so just a few months ago, by way of setting the context, I know you're in Psalm 56, we'll get there in just a few minutes. It was only a few months ago, a recent summit of North American, uh, or excuse me, uh, just leaders, global leaders and European leaders came together in Geneva to talk about a lot of things, mainly about international diplomacy human rights, that sort of thing. Uh, President of Russia was there. Putin was there along with President Biden. So they all took their turn at the meeting saying a few things to the global community. Well, at the same time, Russia was already beginning to stage soldiers and troops at the border. Some 100,000 would amass there over time uh, at the border of Ukraine and Russia. For what was supposed to be, as uh, we understood naively, simply war games, an exercise, a demonstration perhaps of strength uh, on the part of Russia. It was complete with tanks, planes, war hospitals, and the like. And somehow the leaders of the free world at the time kind of naively gave uh, President Putin a pass, believing that this was all just a little bit of saber rattling. If you've been watching the news, you kind of before the Olympics, was seeing the buildup of troops at the border of Russia and the Ukraine. Well, during the conference, uh, the president, of course, of Russia stands up and he says that we've, I've got three demands for everybody. And he, he says, this is it. First of all, he says, I demand uh, three things, that NATO uh, stop expanding, period. That NATO re- withdraws all troops from Russia, excuse me, from Eastern Europe, which is the area in which, of course, Russia is located, that U.S. will no longer defend any of her allies in Eastern Europe with nuclear weapons. And these were his demands. Well, it sounds rather ridiculous. NATO, of course, for those perhaps who don't know, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, those who are really allied with us in terms of defending democracy and freedom around the world. He says, you've got to stop expanding, period. I I demand that. And withdraw all troops from Eastern Europe. Just get out of my doorstep. And that uh, U.S., the U.S. of A., will no longer defend any of her allies with nuclear weapons. The question is, if you're an American, most of you are today, how can we stop exporting freedom and defending our of course, national interests around the world. Simply ridiculous, but that were, that, those were his demands. Uh, not only is uh, Vladimir Putin an atheist, communist, he is, as we understand now, a bit of a bully. And he's a really, he's a bully with weapons and all kinds of... And that can cause um, we who are living on this side of the ocean a little bit of fear, Right? Russia has been known for many years as a superpower. One thing to go against Iraq, or Iran even, or some smaller nation like Afghanistan, 
quite another thing it is to go against a, a nation that's well armed with nuclear weaponry. Well, he has a, a philosophy. I wanted to set that in your heart today a little bit. Uh, and I began to do some research and wondered why in the world is he beaten up on his neighbor? Why would he do that? Well, here's one of the ways in which he thinks. He says the greatest single catastrophe of the 20th century, now remind you, World War II is part of that era of history, the greatest single catastrophe of the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. Some people call it the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. Tens of millions of our people found themselves out of the borders of Russian territory. Well, Vladimir Putin believes it's his job to reassemble the dissembled parts of the Soviet Union. He believes that's really his calling. And I, uh, I'll show a slide here of some of the, that area in which we're talking about. That's kind of hard, hard to see that. And, and I will tell you that the end of history, biblically, uh, I don't know if we can see this little, spot, this little red light here, but this is the area, of course, you know, to Russia, to the north. You go down south a little bit and you will find, Italy is that boot most of us realize, but you go down south here a little bit to this little area, that's where world history will culminate, culminate as all the nations of the world will come together at the end of the tribulation in a battle called Armageddon. And of course, we know at that time, Christ will appear and with the sword of his mouth, destroy all those who come against the people of God. That's the end of human history before, of course, a thousand years where Christ will reign in the millennial period. But these nations, and I'll give you another slide here, it may help a little bit. This was the size of the Soviet Union, this just red, red and blue, before there was this, uh, really this sloughing off of these nations over here uh, that were given autonomy in the, in the uh, ability to establish their own forms of government in what was called the breakup of the Soviet Union. And names uh, that probably we don't say much or hear much, but are just a, a bunch of people groups around in that Slavic, Baltic uh, area. Ukraine, uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, these are some hard names for me even to say. Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tuk Turkmenistan, Belarus, Azerbaijan, Georgia. How did, you know, how did we get over there? Well, we're there. Uh, Moldova, Armenia, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Some of the 14, 15 countries around that area that have now really disassociated themselves from the mothership, so to speak, and the satellite nations have a cultural background, a cultural tie, in some sense a linguistic tie, a bridge to Russia uh, before it was uh, dissolved in this way. Uh, and so there is this cultural connection, but now they have their own autonomy. Well, in Putin's mind, he believes they are his people. And the greatest tragedy of the 20th century... World War II notwithstanding, in his mind, was the breakup of his beloved empire. And he believes they should be reunited under Russian dominance again. And Ukraine, and you might not know this, is especially dear to his heart. Ukraine has a special place in his heart, and I quote him now. He says, he's in a press conference now, he says, Ukraine? Who created Ukraine? Vladimir Lenin created Ukraine when he established the Soviet Union, and that is true. The heart of the former Soviet Union uh, is, is truly this area, Kiev area of Ukraine. But at the breakup in 1991, and some of you remember uh, words um, like glasnost and perestroika. Uh, these words, uh, uh, Perestroika means reformation. Glasnost means openness, freeness, open-handedness. And during that time, of course, some of you remember the leaders at that time, even Ronald Reagan, um, Gorbachev. There was a, a, a freedom for these countries then to disassociate or at least disentangle themselves, disenfranchise themselves. And Ukraine was one of those that left the mothership, so to speak, and is now, in fact, since 2014, the current leadership is now very hostile to Russia. They're fiercely independent, democratic, and they even want to join NATO. Well, that has not set well with Vladimir Putin, and he is doing all he can. It was one thing when they had a leader in place before 2014 that was favorable to Russia, 
But now, uh, this uh, Vladimir Zelensky, I don't know if I have a picture, there he is, uh, is, is very much pro-West, pro-democracy, pro-freedom. And so the fear, and again, uh, there is really no cooperation, no evidence for this. NATO doesn't call me every day, by the way. <laughs> Neither does the Kremlin. Uh, I don't speak Russian, uh, nor does Washington, D.C., but there is really no evidence for the fact that, as, as, uh, as uh, Putin fears, that there's this huge buildup of nuclear weaponry pointed at Moscow, which isn't very far away from the Ukraine. But he believes that there is this, this, this move to arm Ukraine on his very border, and so that has been the driving impulse, not only his love to reassemble Russia as it once the Soviet Union, uh, the Confederacy, but also to really demolish and destroy any potential that Ukraine has, and Ukraine does have some nuclear reactors, any potential that they have to present a, a, a present threat or a future threat to Russia. I'm saying all this by way of history. It's a little unusual way to start a sermon, but you have to understand what's going on there. And in Putin's mind, and he said this over and over again, what, what, what is there? Is there any difference? Is there any difference from what I'm doing to my next door neighbor than what America did in the 1962 missile crisis with Cuba? Remember some of our spy planes uh, discovered that on that little island of Cuba next door to us, the Russians were assembling uh, a missile launching um, development area. And so what our president, JFK, did at the time is he surrounded that little, that little island nation with... Some of you remember that. You were probably living through that. Uh, I was a, a ripe one-year-old. But uh, 1962, they surrounded Cuba in order to disallow any Russian goods, especially weaponry, to be brought in. And so he says, is there anything different that I'm doing, uh, Putin would say, that in destroying or invading them than what you did in Cuba or what you did in Serbia or what you did in Iraq? And he would certainly tout the fact that after we got through with Iraq, we didn't find any nuclear weapons there or any uh, armament that would be really uh, troublesome to us or the world around. And so his, his justification for this war really is based on this kind of this weird thinking that he has. Well, uh, the truth is NATO, to our, to our understanding, nor have we, they're not even a, a NATO country. Ukraine isn't even a NATO country yet. They want to be. But so, so in a preemptive strike, he's crushing these people, and uh, just pray for our friends over there that, that there would be a sense of, of opportunity for the gospel during this time. Well, not only, and this is interesting in terms of biblical, history, biblical prophecy, and by the way, take a guess how much of the Bible, when it was written, was prophetic in nature. Fully one quarter of the Bible tells about things that will happen. There's no other author that can do that with accuracy except for God. And God has something to say about this part of the world. And so I, w I wanted today to really bring up a message that from a couple texts that would settle us. It's easy, naturally, to become afraid about what's going to happen. The two great powers mixing it up, perhaps, over this conflict, and there's no there's no wonder to me that there is a deliberation, probably wisely so, in all the nations rushing to that area of the world to take sides, because that would eventually lead to an international conflict. Well, there is some wise caution needed in approaching this situation, but what's interesting to me is that not too long ago, uh, that the, the Chinese, this has been leaked through uh, sources, that met with, right, right around the Olympics, uh, the Chinese leader, Jinping, met with Putin and said, would it be okay if you would um, postpone this invasion <laughs> of Ukraine till after the Olympics? Would that be all right? A time of international goodwill over the arena of sports. It just, it just makes sense. So I guess they made this little bit of a, a pact to at least put off the invasion. He knew all the time he was going in. We didn't know for sure what he was going to do. But he knew that he was going in. 
to mix it up with Ukraine to send them a message. And here's a statement they signed when they met together. Uh, they issued a 5,000-word statement declaring that the Russian-Chinese partnership... Now, mind you, Russia has borders with a lot of countries. But he has, uh, Russia has a 2,600-square-foot border, square-foot, square-mile or mile border with the Chinese. And so he wants to get along with that superpower. And here's what they decided together. He said this, the, the Russian-Chinese partnership has no limits. And it together denounced NATO enlargement and asserted that these two communistic powers would work together to establish a new global order with whatever true democracy is. Some form of government with a dictator-styled leadership. Of course, both of these superpowers, China and Russia, have a common enemy, right? Us, the U.S. of A., and China itself is hungry for the likes of Taiwan and Hong Kong. And as the world watches what's going on right now between Russia and the Ukraine, it's watching us as well. How do we defend what is democracy or liberty around the world? And so there is an a interesting um, attitude internationally, globally, afoot about what's going on. And uh, so Christians... Uh, and and I, I appreciate the fact that the Bible has something to say about how we are to guard our hearts and to be settled and anchored. We don't have to rage as the heathen do and raise our fist against God because we know who's in control. We know who the King of Kings is and Lord of Lords and His plan for the ages. Well, first of all, let's just talk for a moment today about how to calm our own hearts. I would mention this too in passing that Ukraine uh, has lost over one million of its uh, citizens already who have fled uh, the country and more are on their way out as this thing continues. Why, uh, why must we think biblically? Well, first of all, let's develop a biblical response to the fear of our enemies. And I'm going to handle these passages very, uh, very quickly today in the kind of a, uh, not a, a deep way, but I want you to understand there's great principles for us to calm our hearts. Developing a biblical response to the fear of our enemies. I want to just say this about Psalm 56. David, of course, the writer of this, is, uh, is on, on the run for his life. He's been already anointed the next king of Israel, but he is afraid for Saul who wants to kill him. He's a refugee of his own country, really, and he's fleeing. And the only place he can think to go of is to the land of the Philistines, of course, an enemy nation to the south of Israel. And so he goes there, and of all places, I don't know why David does this, but he goes to the city of Gath. Anybody know who is from Gath? Goliath. For some reason, David, afraid for his life, runs to the Philistines and hangs out in the very neighborhood or the city, the village, where Goliath and his brothers were from. I don't know why he did that. Of course, he wanted to get away from Saul. That's probably why he went there. But he has to feign himself as a, as a madman there just to be protected from... But he's surrounded by enemies all over around his life. And, and first of all, let's do this. Let's understand that in the midst of our fears, you say, we're pretty safe here in America, aren't we? Do you know things could change in a heartbeat? Just a few madmen stirring it up somewhere can throw the whole world into a conflict. God's in control of that. But are you in control of your heart? Here is David, afraid for his life on two fronts, at home and now here among the Philistines. So what does he do? He prays. First of all, we are to be appealing to God for his mercy. I hope you're doing that for the, the believers there in the Ukraine and for your own life and heart here in America. Be merciful unto me, O God, for men would swallow me up. They, fighting daily, oppress me. Mine enemies would swallow me up. For they, that, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I'm afraid I will trust. But look at those first two verses. He is crying out to God for mercy. Settle my heart, God. Be merciful to me. It was the very cry of of the heart of the people of Israel when they were in captivity. God, be merciful to us in Egypt. Be merciful. God loves to listen to the cry of those who cry out to Him for mercy. 
God's unmerited grace and favor, His protection for us from things that we would rightly deserve is His mercy. God, be merciful to us. Remember us in your great mercy that is higher than the heavens. Call upon God and appeal to Him. Implore Him according to His merciful character. And then, we understand this as well. We, we need a proper understanding of God's uh, character and grace in this. We are to, number two, overcome fear with faith. Overcome fear with faith. Look at verse 3. I read it there. What time I'm afraid... Are you afraid this morning? Afraid for what's going to happen to your children? Afraid for the prospect of what may happen? Worrying about the future? I've got a son-in-law in the Air Force. And as things escalate, I talked to him this week. Have they been talking to you? He says, not yet. Not to me yet. I'm sure they were talking. I'm sure they have a plan. Are you afraid, parents, for what the next generation holds for your children? Are you worried about your grandchildren? What kind of world they're going to live in? Have they come to you with questions of fear in their heart? Every time this trouble at war and rumors of wars cause people to fear. The Bible says, in fact, that in the last days, men's heart will fail them for fear. Maybe you have a neighbor this way. I remember after our uh, excursion and uh, to Iraq, our response uh, to the Twin Towers falling down and, or being attacked in New York City and our response. I remember a Wednesday night when we uh, announced our response and sent planes and army and military personnel over to Iraq. Our church on a Wednesday night was filled with people. On a Wednesday night. Um, we need to understand something that we need to trust God in the light, the safety, as well as the times of fear, concern. Full-time Christians, but we're to overcome our fears with faith. Verse 3 says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. And then look at verse 11. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me. What's the worst thing man can do? Well, they can kill us, right? But they can't take away our eternal life. That's secured in Christ. We're to overcome fear with faith. Is God just the God of the mountain and not the valley? Certainly not. The God of the meadows green and not the God of the valleys dark or shadows? Does not His plan remain true and faithful and firm in every age, time, and over every ruler? Is He not sovereign? Yes. Is He not still holding me fast? I understand that uh, the church is there. Uh, the churches that are still remaining and, and trying to hold on and be a comfort to many of the believers, and we're going to try to support some of those by our financial means and our prayers. But I got a great video of a, a church in the Ukraine singing in the Ukraine language, which is a little different than Russian, but they're singing, God will hold me fast, and they're bunkered down. He will. He will. Is he... Is he still holding you fast today, no matter what your fears and trouble? In the hollow of his hand, no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. We are secure, assured in him. Does he not still care for his own? Can he not provide for us a banquet, a table in the wilderness? Yes, he certainly can. Will he ever forsake us, church? Will he? No, not now, not ever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But there are some Ukrainian believers that are very fearful about where their next meal is coming from. Bridges are tore up in certain parts of the country. They can't move in and out. They are simply isolated. Buildings are crumbling. Their life is not going to be the same for a long time. And yet God has promised to hold them. I will never. So we have to overcome our fear with our faith. We have to talk to ourselves biblical truths and principles. Number three, remind yourself of God's attention to your crisis. Remind yourself of God's attention to your crisis. Verses five through eight. Dear believer, understand, even though every day your words are wrestled or twisted, uh, their thoughts are against you. By the way, God knows this, that you are the target of the devil. 
throughout human history, do you know this? The devil has always targeted the line or the seed through which Jesus the Messiah would come. Ever since the garden, he was after the seed through which the Messiah was come. So the devil's been targeting the Jew. He's been targeting the church. And he's been targeting the land uh, where uh, the headquarters for, of course, the Jerusalem and the New Jerusalem will be. God, God knows that. Don't be surprised. Arm yourself, Peter said, with this mindset. But understand this. That uh, even though their thoughts are, they gather themselves together, they hide themselves, they mark my steps, they wait for my soul. The devil is after us. He wants to eliminate us. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger, Lord, cast down the people, O God. And then what I like is verse 8. Do you know that God knows where you are? Although you may be fleeing right now from the Ukraine, wherever you are, running away, to preserve your life, that's a natural response. God knows where you are. And sometimes in the scattering of his saints, there goes the gospel to further places. God knows what he's doing, but he tells my wonderings. And he puts every tear of mine into a bottle. Are they not written Of course, this is symbolic, but God knows your every tear, your every struggle, your every fear. God cares about you. If his eye is on the sparrow, certainly it is on you, dear friend, this morning. Realize in your fears who is on your side, who is on our side, verses 9 and 10, when I cry unto thee. Then shall mine enemies turn back. For this I know. God is what? For me. If God be for you, who can be against you? You and God are a majority. And although they may claim your life, persecute your family, run you out of Dodge, so to speak, chase you all your life. The devil will pursue you. His hot breath will be on your neck all your life. But God is for you. Who can be against you? God is the greatest. He is the high, uh, high God of heaven. No one can stand in his presence. He will preserve you in the end. And he is preserving you now. Think about who is on your side. And then this, a great thought. Feed on the promises of God. Verse 12, thy vows are upon me. Of course, this is written to the covenant people, but we are covenant too. We are part of the new covenant, God, God's bride. He's chosen us and he's put his arm around us. He's put his gospel in our heart. He's promised to bring us to heaven. We talked last week in terms of prophecy. We talked last week, last week about the rapture of the church, the catching up of the bride. Your promises are upon me, O God. I will render praises to thee. You know something, you ought to be guarded in your soul, armed in your heart by the promises of God. When you're afraid, how many verses come to mind? I I hope that you have memorized at least some of Romans chapter 8, especially the last part. If God be for us, who can be against us? And then what shall separate us from the love of God? Pray that for our Ukrainian friends who right now may be questioning that. We feel separated from the love of of our countrymen, the love of Russia, if there ever was. We feel isolated, but the Bible says, who shall separate you from the, not height nor depth, any creature, nothing, angels, principalities, powers, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. What a great thought that is. Feed on the promises. Maybe you're feeding on fear. Feed instead on the promises of God that will preserve your heart. And then praise God in the face of your fears. You think, how is that possible? I love the story, don't you, of of Paul in the Philippian jail. Midnight, Paul and Silas, the Bible says, Acts 16, what did they do? They what? They sang praises to God. How could they do that? I'm sure Silas must have nudged him a little bit, said, Paul, why in the world? I don't want to sing. I don't feel like singing. Who's to say we're to be led by our feelings? This is a discipline of praise. In the midst of the the darkest time for Paul's life, I mean, persecuted, arms and legs stretched far apart in the stalks, back whipped, 
he sang praises. And, and I'm thankful for that. It's a great testimony for us who are going through it. Can you sing to God? You say, I'm not a good singer anyway. Well, just lift up your voice and croak. Uh, make a joyful noise. Do something, but let people know. Do you know that the dark times of your life will be the megaphone of God's grace and glory? People will look at you. They'll listen to your solo. What are you singing? Woe is me. Can't wait till this is over. Or are you praising God who's faithful in the valley, the mountain? God is good to you now, even though you're going through a difficulty. God is faithful to you. Don't ever, and sing, raise your voice. So our response to wars, crisis, and sudden terror, hopefully these six principles will help you a little bit. And then uh, let's go quickly now as we wrap things up. I want to share with you the, the, really the demise of the nations in terms of prophecy. Let's go to Ezekiel, shall we? As we uh, finish things up, Ezekiel, please. And uh, let's go to chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38, what's going to happen to Russia? Uh, you ought to have a heart that's settled, promises of God, praising God, and trusting God, crying out to God for mercy. Now, don't be too troubled about what's going on in the nations, because God's in control of that. If He's in control of your heart, He's also in control of the nations. We are to understand God's sovereign plan for the nations, and it just this again will not be just curse. This would be cursory, not deep. We're not going to get deep into all the details here, but let's read some verses about where Russia fits into prophecy. A lot of preachers today are talking about this issue. What, what's, what about Russia? How do they fit in? You know, we're not mentioned in Scripture. There's a lot of speculation about what's going to happen to America. We don't know where we. Obviously, at that last day, if we're still around, at the last moment of history before the millennium, we're going to be part of the nations that oppose Israel because all the nations will gather. But here's a, here's a wonderful reminder to us about where Russia fits in to biblical prophecy in the end times. Verse 1 says of chapter 38, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, set thy face against Gog. Magog, Meshach, Tubal, these are names for princes and family tribes that settled in the north, the area we know now as Russia or the Soviet Union, and say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, <clears throat> O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn, this is God now, speak of the time, the, la the latter times or the time of the tribulation, I will turn thee back, put hooks in thine jaw, God's sovereign will is at play here, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine armies, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. And there's an alliance here that Russia garners in, towards the last days. Persia, these are names that are still in use. Ethiopia, uh, Libya, with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of his bands, the house of Togarma, the north quarters, all his bands and many people with thee. There's a grand alliance Coming from the north, as I mentioned on the map behind me earlier, towards a little nation called Israel. Again, why, is that, why are they coming? Well, the devil hates Israel. There may be some resources that they're after, but really, bottom line, the devil knows his time is short towards the latter times, and he's coming to destroy this people. Well, let's read on. Be thou prepared, prepare thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled, again speaking to Russia. Uh, be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years, we'll speak about that, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. This is Israel. Speaking of Israel, is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely. Now this does not happen at the end of the tribulation, but at the beginning. They shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. This speaks of the time that this invading army, this coalition from the north, will come down uh, to attack Israel. God's, uh, God speaks then to uh, this, this situation, verse 10. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, Russia, 
Gog, that northern alliance, and thou shalt think an evil thought. It's already starting, isn't it? And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, and I will go to them that are at rest, them that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil, and to pray, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, all the young lions shall say to them, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? There is some resource there, great resource, mineral, and other things. And in the last days, these will become scarce. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Russia, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people Israel are dwelling safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the northern parts, thou, many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company, a mighty army. And thou shalt come against my people Israel. Interesting verse here. As a cloud, a great swarm, to cover the land, and it shall be in the latter days. Mark that, and I will bring thee against my land. God sovereignly is directing this, that... The heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Russia, or Gog, before their eyes. Well, let's ask ourselves some questions here about this time. Who will come? When will they come? How will they be destroyed and why? And again, just very quickly as we wrap things up, uh, this is an important text prophetically, and it deals specifically with the land of Israel, excuse me, the land of Russia. No time to dive deeply into all the details, but it's safe to say biblically that this is prophecy from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, about this coming invasion, invasion from the north by this uh, coalition or allied forces led by the leader, we don't know who he will be, of Russia. Well, this is about the who will come, when, why, and how. We have to see in uh, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 2, that God speaks to a, a, a certain group or family group, and he identifies the who. He says, here's, here's a group of people coming. Uh, Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and uh, those that are with him. Uh, who are these people? Well, as we study, uh, at least historically in Bible history, we understand that these names really refer to people groups living north of Israel. Uh, Rosh or Gog stands for Russia in the Bible, or what has now come to be known as Russia. Togarma, Turkey, a large um, country, Gomer, Germany, Persia, we know that to be Iran today, Ethiopia, and Libya. These names are still, some of them, in use today. These are really referring to a group of people, land masses, and countries located directly north of Israel. And the Bible says in the latter days they will be coming. Daniel 11 speaks of a king from the north that will coalesce a big group of people or bring together a big group of people to come against Israel. And we know that Daniel 11 also speaks of a king of the south, the king of Egypt and all those farther south below him in Africa. Uh, but this battle is specific to the king of the north. And uh, the Bible says he's coming. He's going to get, gather a support of all these nations. He's coming. The latter days, the final chapter of human history, known as the tribulation or the seven years of tribulation, a time upon the earth where you won't have to guess. Now, as a believer, you'll be taken out of here. But if you're living here, you will not have to guess as to whether you're in the tribulation or not because the events there, again, not only will fill men's heart with fear, causing panic attacks, but they will be so dramatic, evident, and internationally um, effective on, on the whole world that you will not have to guess whether it's the time of tribulation or not. The Bible in the book of Revelation chapter 1 says that the events that will happen will happen with such uh, speed and uh, acceleration that when they happen, it's like a, like a shotgun, or not a shotgun, but like a, like a machine gun. These events will happen so quickly and with such force globally that you will know that this is a time of great tribulation. Well, what happens is the Antichrist, or the little horn of Daniel 7, 20, uh, 24, where the beast begins to come to power. In fact, the, the tribulation begins with a covenant that he establishes with the people of Israel. He gains favor with them. And so Russia, uh, north of Israel, 
is attracted and enamored either by the natural resources or by the fact that Israel itself is just the enemy. They are induced by the, de uh, the demons and the Satan himself to come and destroy this part, this very poignant part, this very important part of the world. And so uh, the latter part, probably the first three and a half years, we see this as a, a battle It'll take place in the first three and a half years, probably towards the middle of the tribulation period, as, as these forces come from the north to really pluck the goods and the services, not services, but the goods that are the resources that are there in this part of the world. Well, here they come. And the Bible says it comes, just a specific, it's not, sometimes this gets confused as the last battle of Armageddon. It's not that battle, and I'll tell you why it's not. It's going to happen in the first three and a half years after the church is resurrected or raptured out of here. And it's not the final battle of the tribulation because this invasion involves certain, only certain nations. They're listed for us. And the last battle will involve all the nations. And peace and safety are enjoyed by Israel as this uh, attacking army comes. And in the last three years of the tribulation, there is no time. Nobody's feeling at peace or safe. And then this is a, there's a civil war that breaks out in the midst of this invasion as these armies come together and they begin to fight themselves. Now, when the final battle takes place, God is the one who destroys everybody. But in this battle, we'll see that, that there are, uh, verse 21, look at that. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord, and every man's sword or chapter 38, verse 21, every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead with him for, with pestilence, with blood. I will rain upon him, upon his bands, and upon the people that are with him with an overflowing rain, great hailstones, fire, brimstone. There's also a tremendous earthquake. But these natural um, forces against Russia and all his friends that come to attack Israel, there's also this internal conflict as they distrust one another and begin to kill one another. So it's a different battle. It happens in the latter times. The first part, we believe, most, uh, most um, conservative scholars believe, the first half of the tribulation. So that's the, the who's coming, when they're coming, how they perish. Well, let's talk about how they perish real quick. Look at verse 18 um, and beyond, verse 18 of chapter 38. What happens is they shall come at the same time, Come to pass at the same time when Russia shall come against the land of Israel, that my fury shall come up in my face. Have you ever heard or seen someone who just gets angry and you can see it in their face, you can see it in their eyes, and their face begins to flush? Well, it's a bad thing. It's a bad day for you when God looks at you and has that complexion. Here comes all these armies from the north, first part of the tribulation towards the middle, probably the right around the middle, and here, here, he, here they come, and God's face flushes. God gets mad, and he turns his face against them. And he says this, <clears throat> they, they infuriate me, verse 18, and then God initiates a global, global shakedown, an earthquake. The topography changes, verse 19, the mountains crumble, and although the cities are not walled, there's some walls that exist here and there, and they will crumble as well. Chapter 20, uh, 38, verse 20b. And there's fire, thunder, shaking, hailstones. And this internal conflict, civil war breaks out among the troops. And they are destroyed. Let me hasten to say what happens then. There are so many dead bodies. Again, not the final conflict of mankind at the end of the tribulation, Armageddon. But this one, there is a lot of carnage. The vultures begin to circle. It takes seven months seven months for Israel to bury the dead. And the, the Bible says they'll burn the fuel from the armament there for seven years. So even into the millennium, Israel will still be using the leftover fuel from all the tanks, armored vehicles there. And so there'll be so many <clears throat> vehicles, so much fuel for consumption left over by this tremendous victory of God, that there will be plenty of fuel available for Israel to use, and they'll be burying the dead. The place will stink. Passersby will lift their nose, the Bible says, 
because the stench of the dead in seven months they'll be burying the dead from this north. That's the final demise of Russia. But here's why it happens, and let's close with this. Why does this happen? Well, obviously the devil knows his time is short. He hates Israel, and he would like to destroy the people. But I think it's such a great verse to end our discussion today about a heart that's calm and fearful in the face of wars and rumors of wars, and then an understanding, a biblical understanding of what happens to the north, the northern tribes, the northern... It's found in verse 16. Why does God do what He does? Thou shalt come up against my people, Israel, as a cloud, a swarm to cover the land, and it shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee, uh, bring thee against my land. I, God, will bring thee against my land. And I want you to, if you're an underliner, this is a great time. That the heathen, what? That the heathen may know me. Who's me? God. When I shall be sanctified. What does that word mean? Set apart, hallowed, lifted up identified as the great king, the high king of heaven. So let's read it again. I will bring the, I will bring the, God is working in the details of history, my friends. And he will bring this great army down and then destroy them. Why? There is an evangelistic, God-glorifying purpose to everything he does. To Moses, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to take the people of Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand that they may know who I am. God's goal for human history has always been that he might be lifted up, hallowed and sanctified as the only God. So I'm going to bring Russia and all her allied forces down against Israel. I will crush them when they get to my homeland there at the borders or within the borders of Israel, and I'm going to do that. Why? There's an evangelistic thought here. You say, well, is anybody going to get saved? Yes. In fact, Revelation chapter 7 says, the martyrs of the tribulation are an innumerable host that arrive in heaven. There are going to be people get saved in this time. God is going to gather many again by His grace. He's gracious. And He says, the reason I'm going to destroy Russia and all her allied forces in the face of the world, is that they might know me. That there's nobody like me. And you can take this to the bank. This is going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine in the next few days. But you can take this to the bank. This is how it ends. God wins. He's winning now. He's, he's setting the table. For, what, for this battle and the ones to follow. And we know how it ends. We win. We're on the winning team. But here's what I want to say to some of you who may be on the edge. You're not a Christian and you're just biding your time. Now, it'll be very hard for you if you heard the gospel before the rapture of the church to, to be, get saved during, I believe, almost impossible. But here's the truth. God, even in the Seven years of great tribula- or tribulation and great tribulation, the end of time for human history, as he wraps the curtain call for human history. And these battles ensue. Do you know that God is still gracious? There is the testimony of his word. Bibles will be left into the tribulation. There's the two witnesses. There's the 144,000. And then there's the demonstration by cataclysmic events and great dynamic uh, powerful, miraculous things that God is the only God there is. If you do not believe this morning that God in heaven should be, could be, and ought to be the God of your heart, know this, that if grace, and during this period of time, the church age, when you have reason and opportunity to hear and believe the gospel, if you don't believe that, just wait. When God raises His powerful hand in judgment, you will have to bow. In fact, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. And I want to tell you something. You would, you would rather be a part of the family of God through the warm whispers of grace now 
than to be, a, to be convinced by his powerful and terrible sword that he is sanctified, he is identified, he is lifted up and magnified and hallowed as the great God. Don't be the one who stands in opposition to that, in doubt of that. Come to Christ while you can. Because there's a day coming where it will be very difficult for those that forget or mock God ever to be turned. But God still, even in this time, is gracious. Even in the tribulation, he's reaching out. And here's the phrase again. And I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me. Sometimes it was a warm, tender warning from my mother that I ought to do right. And that's all it took, a tear. Other times, my dad and his wonderful belt convinced me. But in both occasions, on both occasions, there was one purpose from heaven that I might know that God loves me. Friend, what will it take if the cross of Christ does not convince you of his love for you, what will it take? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for warning us about what is to come. And in the same way, comforting us that no matter what comes, uh, you are the God who is the God that is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. And we pray that we would take warning First of all, Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts about what to do with the fear that often overcomes and overwhelms us. We are part of your family. We can trust in you, cry to you for mercy. We do that even today. And it's not just Ukraine that troubles us and what's happening there, Lord. There's all kinds of things that circle and overwhelm us. And so, Lord, I pray that in those difficult moments, surrounded by enemies and fear, concerns and doubt, <clears throat> that we would cry to you for mercy, understand your care for us, praise you in the midst of the storm. And then, Lord, I pray for those that are fighting you, testing you. And, Lord, I pray that they would surrender themselves, their will to you before it's too late, before they realize by force that you are the God, the high God of heaven. Lord, I pray that you will reach out to their hearts even now in this quiet moment. If they've been fighting you, doubting you, they would understand that it's only a fool that rages and says, there is no God. It's only a fool that raises his fist in the face of God and laughs, realizing that you will have the last laugh. Lord, you love us. You're patient with us. We're thankful for the grace and the freedom we enjoy in this place and time. May we not fritter it away, but use it for the extension. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.